Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, Starbucks rolls out a new type of espresso. We have earnings and a promised legal update in the grocery industry. And a major West Coast QSR Plus chain rolls out a new LTO. But we begin by talking about chilies. But first this, you know about the perks that come with owning your own business like financial freedom, being your own boss and having more control of your time. But maybe you're just not sure where to start. You know, all of this can be yours when you open a UPS store franchise. It sure can. And the UPS store has over 35 years of experience in franchising. They were actually just ranked number four, a top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. The UPS store offers stability, the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand, and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you'll need to run the business and make your entrepreneurial dream come true. Stores are available in large and small markets both across the country And you see that their franchising experts will actually help you find a location that's just right for you. So if you're worried about that, they'll help support in that manner as well. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans as well. The financing is the big part. We often talk about how expensive certain franchises can be out of pocket. Not the case with the UPS store. The time to promote yourself to business owner is now. Visit theupsstorefranchising.com slash Focus to get started today. That's the UPS store franchising.com slash focus. Well, in a move that may feel like giving up to some analysts, Chili's has finally announced a drastic downsizing of their menus. This is something they've been alluding to in recent earnings reports. The chain is looking to reduce the amount of items on its menus throughout the U.S. by around 40%. Again, Chili's owned by Brinker International. They want to reduce their menu to 75 items, give or take from 125. At first glance, Chili's appears to be a company that's struggling mightily to garner significant traffic traction because of this crowded FSR space we talk about and also incoming entrance in the meal delivery space and a heavily priced out grocery sector. For us, at least, this company draws a lot of similarities to publicly traded Ruby Tuesday or where Ruby Tuesday was about two years ago. Ruby Tuesdays tried to enhance customer service and introduced more upscale salad bars and a varied offering to its core customers. But it seems as though right now Chili's in the same boat as Dine Equity, in the same boat as Ignite. They're trying to find some traction in a very crowded space to attract customers to come back to its stores. In addition to trying to get traction, you see that other than Chili's, Ruby Tuesday, Applebee's, and Joe's Crab Shack have all tried recently to revamp their menus in hopes of becoming stronger brands. Well, that same methodology has been put into place at the now downsized Ruby Tuesday. It seems to be a renewed theme for Chili's. They've most likely been looking at their menu for some time. The reduction would help Chili's improve speed of service and positively shift the sales mix with a simpler menu, a better quality, faster execution, and stronger value. Those last few words by Wyman Roberts of Brinker International, their president and CEO. He told analysts in August they have been looking at the menu, and they look to actually enhance the overall customer service by downsizing that menu. 
To extrapolate that, we can see that this means a number of things for those employees working for the location and the customers coming in, their core customer. Customers will be able to easily peruse the menu and decide a little bit quicker. It's not going to get muddled with those 125 items that Trent had talked about, which may hurt for those appetizer and drink offerings, but also let customers who want to get in and out quicker do so. Number two, wait staff can more easily memorize the menus and also get the orders entered in a hastened fashion. They're going to be more acquainted with the 75 item menu, and this is going to make for quicker service overall without having to worry about more complex orders having to be entered for the back end of the restaurant. And speaking of the back end, Trent, having fewer items to worry about in cooking and preparation means that orders can get processed faster as cooks can better utilize space and be able to multitask without having to think too much about potentially complex orders coming through in the short term so as to derail current tasks they're working on. But overall, the restaurant chain will be highlighting the more important common entrees they feel like they are more known for. And this is interesting because they did not speak of using any certain analytics or prior sales data for this decision making. They feel though that American cuisine that has made them a staple throughout many business hubs such as airports and shopping districts in the United States for a number of years is what's going to bring them back to a successful business. And they say by eliminating 40% of their menu, they've reinvested in meteor burgers, ribs, and fajitas, the items that they've always been known for, says Kelly Vallade, their Chili's president, in a statement. 30% thicker ribs, for instance, is being advertised by the company. And in testing, you see that this company has actually already tried some different shorter menu options. The company leadership has noted that the average check has gone up with these shortened menus and the product mix. This despite less appetizer offerings, which is a logical step if you are going to downsize a menu. Crispy asparagus appetizer will be removed as an example of an appetizer that they have no longer have on their menu. And in terms of more entree-like items, we speak of them really trying to focus on the American cuisine. They're not going to have any more flatbeds, no enchiladas, or burritos anymore as entree items. And this is where we start to question the dynamic of their larger strategic moves. Yes, the company has to evolve and make changes to do better, as do most legacy FSRs. But taking off more items and more important items may not necessarily drive the traffic that you're thinking it will by really trying to promote those items that are based around American cuisine because a lot of times you think that larger groups, families, and other larger parties in general are coming to Chili's restaurants. Just takes one or two of those people when discussing where to go in terms of an FSR to say, oh yeah, that's right, they no longer have a whole portion of entrees. And so I think you may be alienating some of your core customers. Not everybody, obviously, Again, we're talking about the sales data they most likely used in making this logical step. But you see the less diversified menu, the lesser chances of having common ground with these larger parties. For some reason, large strategic changes end up going too far. Perhaps there is pressure to go all in once you want to make a strategic move at that executive level. But Overall, perhaps the best answer is to go slowly and not potentially alienate any of your core customer and their families. 
And that's something that we really question about this move. And we've talked about it before, not only in terms of a pizza QSR like Domino's, but other FSRs, where if you eliminate something off the menu or an entire category off a menu that a particular family member in a family of four or five likes, then suddenly that family is going elsewhere. And while a new simpler menu does have its benefits, as you outlined, especially on the back end of things, it also has downsides, most importantly to the customers who come in, see that their favorite items are no longer on the menu, and then kind of vow to not come back for a while. Now, in terms of an advertising push in an effort to get people to continue coming into the stores, they are working on conventional means to reach customers, both through television and traditional media outlets outside of TV. They are continually promoting their two for 22. You get two entrees and an appetizer for $22. On this end, they're showcasing their ribs and their steak, both of which they're wanting to focus on a little bit more now. And regarding that back-end efficiency that we talked about, they're actually eliminating quinoa, cauliflower, and a few other ingredients as well as a few sauces and seasonings. With chilies, those sauces and seasonings are usually pre-made and shipped to the restaurant. So in that circumstance, it'll cut down on storage and cut down also on the amount you're taking up in your freight as well. Brinker International, the parent company of Chili's, they had a very lackluster fourth quarter report from last month. Brinker's same-store sales system-wide declined 1.8% in the quarter. Chili's same-store sales themselves dropped 2.2% at company-owned restaurants. It fell 1.7% at franchise units. This continues a trend we've noticed where company-owned restaurants for Brinker International are actually declining quicker than their franchised units. And here we have another aspect to this new menu rollout where you might see franchisees, especially those that are performing well over last year, maybe push back to the newer menu rollout. Now, a negative 1.7% decline in same-store sales is not at all good. There are some franchises that are certainly above positive, and those franchisees may be worried this number for them might get worsened by having a reduction by 40% in terms of their menu. Now, in terms of margins, the menu is most likely a solid move, but for legacy operators, steep decline in top-line revenue is sure to feel uncomfortable from those families that maybe aren't getting some of those classics, some of that 40% that's on the menu. The last report from the company showed that they operated or franchised a total of 1,674 restaurants. Grand majority of those are Chili's with 52 Maggiano's units. For the record, Maggiano's Little Italy concept, they've fared much better than the Chili's concept. Their sim store sales were actually up during the last quarter half a percent. For the week so far, Brinker International stock ticker EAT is up 4.5%. This move likely because of the transitional state of the company, and as a result, there is higher trading volume. Shares currently around $32. This represents a middling price-to-earnings ratio of 10.6. The company, though, still very profitable, and they have a 4.7% dividend. Well, at the top, Trent had talked about a new drink offering from Starbucks, or at least a new innovation, and Starbucks is known for innovation, or at least piggybacking off of current market trends. Now their R&D teams have introduced a new cold-pressed espresso, and to be honest with you, a new state-of-the-art extraction process seems to have created this drink. It's been used to create an espresso base that the company is hoping to use in a variety of its drinks. A patent-pending inverted flow filtration system is able to extract more flavor in the coffee drink while also making the overall process a lot quicker and easier compared to conventional cold brew. 
That very cold brew has helped the company to keep sales steady at the chain. Also, in addition to Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts has been seeing positive sales from cold brew here in the recent past. And you see their newly crowned CEO, Kevin Johnson, saying they're from cold brew to Starbucks draft. We have been building a cold platform that not only appeals to our customers, but acknowledges that cold beverages are no longer just seasonal. And with that, he says this is a new technique, a step in our cold coffee journey and the perfect ingredient to design a menu of cold espresso or coffee options. We believe the opportunities are limitless. And with that, you can really see that it's going to be coming a large part of their portfolio. All of their cold drinks, they want to be almost 40 to 50% of their portfolio in the next four to five years. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. The company first started using this cold pressed espresso as recently as this week on Tuesday, September 12th at a reserve roastery near its Seattle, Washington headquarters. Obviously, this is where they try a lot of their new drinks and roll out a lot of their new items overall. So far, the company has three uses for this cold pressed espresso in mind. First being sparkling cold pressed Americano, a shot of cold pressed espresso poured over sparkling water served on ice. This is something that a lot of coffee operators around the country, a lot of grassroots operations have actually already had in place. They also, as a second offering, have a cold-pressed ginger fizz, ginger ale infused with a shot of cold-pressed espresso, poured over barrel-aged vanilla syrup, and finished with grapefruit bitters. Cold-pressed Americano exploration flight, something that they're calling a little bit more innovative here, a tasting flight featuring one cold-pressed Americano, one traditional iced Americano, and one sparkling cold-pressed Americano. So they want you to get one of each here. The company is trying to be a little bit more creative and trying to drive their research and development. Company representatives believe that the drinks dynamic here will facilitate more drink combinations in the future. So beyond the three that I talked about, those offerings for their core customer, they're really wanting to talk about where they're going to be able to use this in the future. And it's most likely because of that process, they're able to obtain a lot of texture and a lot of flavor from that espresso, and they're going to want to use that going forward. Now, there are issues with this, and I'll talk about that here in a second. Now, as far as other cold innovations they've had, their, their nitro cold brew, that's barely one year old. Something so new, in fact, that we covered it last year on an earlier Food Focus podcast. Leighton, I know you've tried the cold brew, and a lot of people that are in our listening audience likely to have tried some form of nitro cold brew but again at starbucks you're looking at a 450 plus price tag with tax or with tax added to that the company anticipates that by the end of 2017 their nitro will actually be available in nearly 1500 stores in 26 markets throughout the u.s so it's been a fairly slow rollout in part because of the equipment necessitated and it may well be the same with this cold pressed espresso. The company wants to see its cold brew revenue quadruple in the next four to five years and have half of its coffee drink business comprised of these cold brew variations. That being said, it's tough to say how much this most recent cold pressed espresso will be a part of that calculation. Probably not much if you ask me and we'll get into reasons for that here in a second. 
It is clear, though, however, that the company intends on continuous improvement and constant investment in this niche category. They envision cold brew as no longer being niche in 2021 and beyond, and I would argue that we are already there considering the amount of places selling cold brew coffee. Now, there are some issues with this rollout. There's no denying that this process is very legitimate. I think it does deliver a higher-end product. However, there are some issues here. The first issue is that cold-pressing espresso will reveal any issues with their beans. and You often see this with any method of cold pressure extraction with coffee as some of the off flavors of beans tend to shine through a little bit more than the hot extraction or the typical espresso shot-pulling method. They've not necessarily, Starbucks has, been known for stocking the freshest of beans at their locations nationwide. Many coffee aficionados don't necessarily care for their current espresso roast. Now, right now, this cold-pressed espresso is only being sold at the Starbucks Roastery in Seattle. So the beans and the freshness there won't be a problem, but it could be if it's rolled out nationwide, especially in drinks such as their sparkling Americanos or what they're calling their sparkling Americanos because there's not anything there, cream, sugar, etc., on the surface to distract from that espresso taste. So if customers don't like their espresso blend, that's going to be even more evident in those particular drinks. Another problem for Starbucks is this push towards year-round cold drinks appears misguided. Now, is it good to stock cold beverages all the time and have those available to your customers? Yes, especially in warmer markets, but even in your colder markets, it's fine to have those available all the time. However, is it good to use cold beverages in LTO form in December or January? And no, it's not. This is something that Starbucks has been trying to push over the last couple of years. Indicators are that they will push LTOs regarding the cold-pressed espresso in winter months this year. And as we saw last year, there was terrible demand for some of their cold LTOs, their iced lattes, and also their Pokemon Frappuccinos in December and January. And because of this, their overall limited-time offer sales went down in December and January below where typically it is with their peppermint lattes and that type of thing. Because of Starbucks' larger nationwide footprint with any rollout, we'll see some inconsistency among locations until all stores get the infrastructure for this cold press espresso in place, as what we're seeing with the nitro cold brew. But perhaps the largest issue here is that the utility of this cold-pressed espresso is limited to any drinks that are specific to this cold-press method. And what I mean by that, currently they use hot espresso for iced lattes and Americanos. So if you go go in and order a traditional iced Americano, what they'll actually do is they'll pull a shot hot and then pour that in there over ice so it melts some of the ice, cools down the espresso very quickly. And for their frappe drinks, they actually just use a mix. They don't use cold espresso as some smaller shops typically do. Everything is basically within the mix. Think of it as maybe the Starbucks Via, for example being in the mix for that coffee flavor. So there's not really a purpose to any of this cold-pressed espresso unless they put items specifically 
for that on the menu. And I would argue that at many of their locations, if your only items regarding the cold-pressed espresso is the cold-pressed ginger fizz or a cold-pressed Americano, you're probably not going to see too many orders for those items. So then it becomes a question of convenience for the back end. Does it make sense to have that technology on hand when you're only selling a few items? Now, for the roastery locations, this makes perfect sense. People going to those roastery locations want to try out new and different things. Is this going to make a nationwide impact immediately at Starbucks stores? Probably not. And in fact, if it does make any type of an impact, it's going to take some more menu innovation on their part and perhaps a changing of how they do things. Maybe using this cold pressed espresso in their iced lattes that's going to make this process not only more efficient but more worthwhile for the company. Unless you see that, I really don't see this process, as great as it may be, making a significant impact at Starbucks. Now, it might make a significant impact at other coffee shops or other areas, but again, it's a patent-pending process, so we'll kind of see how all that plays out going forward. As we mentioned at the top of the show, there are a lot of perks that come with owning your own business. Leighton and I both take advantage of this type of thing as business owners ourselves, financial freedom, we get to be our own boss, and we get to have more control of your time. Well, if you want to be a business owner as well and you're not yet, I know we have a lot of franchisees out there. Well, let me tell you about the UPS Store franchise. Actually, let's let Leighton talk about the UPS Store franchise. Well, it's really important that a franchisor bring in a lot of experience to show that they have a support and reputation behind them and UPS has just that the UPS store has over 35 years of franchising experience and they were just ranked the number four franchise to own by entrepreneurs magazine 2017 franchise 500 list they offer that stability and support and they bring a world-renowned brand with them a proven business model with all of the training and marketing support you'll need to make your entrepreneurial dream come true stores are available in both small and large markets across the country and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right and there's financing help for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans bottom line the time to promote yourself to business owner if you haven't done so already is now visit the ups store franchising.com slash focus to get started today that's the ups store franchising.com slash focus well, on the last story, we talked about a coffee innovation coming by way of Starbucks. Now we have some court news. We have earnings and a promised legal update by way of Kroger. It almost feels too soon, but Kroger has actually dropped recently a federal lawsuit against Lidl that alleged the taking of a similar private label mark. First, the legal update as we'll delve in. To that, we've actually followed the story twice in the recent past as we first discussed the initial proceedings and then a verbal retort from Lidl as they were basically saying that their trademark has nothing to do with what Kroger has had in the recent years with their private selection brand, all of which had made mainstream media headlines as these things are sure to do when a number two U.S. supermarket is threatening a number one European grocer, and you see Kroger will not be refiling this specific lawsuit as both parties have basically agreed to walk away. And you see, of course, this is what Lidl wanted to do from the very start. They were actually telling the judge there is no basis for this lawsuit. In a number of ways, both companies had actually done research trying to do some evidence gathering as they were both conducting customer surveys to prove 
that there was no correlation or there is correlation between the potential resemblance in the preferred selection and private selection trademarks. Preferred selection is actually something that Lidl uses. Private selection is what Kroger uses. As a result of the case withdrawal, both companies have agreed to be responsible for their own attorney's fees. A very clean break here with this federal lawsuit. As we stated before, there is really only one absolute in these types of court cases. Lawyers will always get paid. So those attorneys have to get paid one way or another. Either one company pays for both parties' lawyer fees or they do what they're doing here, which is where they're splitting it. Initially, Kroger said it was seeking damages in excess of $75,000. That number would actually be higher if lawyer fees were included at the end of the day. But obviously, this is more of a starting point for the company. They were seeking damages, I'm sure, well into six and seven figures. However, you see that this is no longer going to be the case as this has dropped. And it was more of an unknown figure overall. And Kroger actually said that they were a little unsure as to how much they were suing Lidl for. And they said the evidence gathering would actually be better to calculate the overall damages. It was going to be tough to figure out that exact number. The reason being is customers, they were arguing, were going to Lidl because they were mistaking it with a Kroger subsidiary. So they were going because of that prior built-in brand awareness that Kroger brought to the table. They were thinking that Lidl's products were potentially Kroger products, and that was actually taking away potential sales from Kroger corporate. In our second follow-up, we discussed the fact that Judge John A. Gibney Jr. denied Kroger's injunction request and ordered a jury trial and spoke with skepticism when talking about the case he said, although Kroger brings five claims overall against Lidl, it asserts only two of its counts in support of its motion for a preliminary injunction, trademark infringement and dilution. Kroger fails to show a likelihood of success on the merits of either of its asserted claims. You see this dealt an obvious blow to the Kroger side, but the ruling was not one that is uncommon here. It seemed as though Kroger seemed intent on going to trial. That was obviously going to take time and money. So this is something that a for-profit, publicly held company has to take into consideration. You're going to have something here that takes time and the company resources. It may not be something that the executives end up wanting to do. And in terms of the evidence gathering and time, perhaps there was something that wasn't released to the public from the previous Kroger discovery phase, meaning that overall in-house, they may have actually proven to themselves there was actually less of a case than they had originally thought. So this is interesting, but both companies can actually move on and compete at what they do best, and that is selling groceries to consumers. And one other note there, you mentioned lawyers always get paid. Researchers always get paid as well. So the people that were doing those customer surveys or paid to do those customer surveys also earned quite a bit of a payday from this lawsuit that was dropped. Well, Leighton, now that you've gone over the legal ease, let's talk about earnings from Kroger's second quarter for the period ending August 12th. There were some important highlights here that took many investors by surprise. But first, let's look into the financial breakdown. Kroger said sales improved 3.9% to $27.6 billion. This was a $100 million beat on analysts' expectations. Same-store sales, excluding fuel, increased by 0.7%. That's the first positive quarter since the third quarter of last year. Factset analysts were expecting a 0.4% gain. So again, beating on that front and net earnings 
for them decreased by 8.3% to $353 million. This was in line with expectations despite Kroger beating on top-line revenue, but a gross margin hit that everyone was expecting with the so-called price war in grocery that capped earnings potential. Gross margin as a percent of sales was 21.7%, down 30 basis points. Again, expected as pricing pressure throughout the industry has taken hold and inflation really hasn't ticked upward as of yet. Inflation has been pretty tepid, especially in the grocery industry. I think we've stopped seeing grocery deflation at this point. But we're seeing more stagnation there. And with the price wars going on, this, of course, affecting the bottom line. Inflation as a whole was said to have ticked up in the grocery space, but ever so slightly, basically even over last year, nothing seen as robust as yet. The company took another hit as far as stock price as Wall Street didn't take too kindly to the company's decision to eliminate longer term guidance. Now, their CFO explained that this was most likely the biggest reason for the dip in share price and continued pessimism and that they wouldn't feel comfortable issuing structured expectations in what he called a very dynamic market and a fast-changing environment. These are understandable things. He went on to say that further investments in people and technology are certain but alluded to the fact that the costs around the expenditures were not. We tend to agree with their premise here overall. The company will have to evolve doing so under public scrutiny with quarterly press releases. So why make it harder on yourself when you have expectations going forward, when you have to have three, four, or five-year benchmarks in an industry where you have no idea where inflation is going? You can only make basically a targeted guess. And so much of what Kroger does is sell the essentials. And again, we don't know what commodities prices will be like three, four, or five years down the road. And in fact, we're kind of surprised that any grocer includes three, four, or five-year benchmarks. The company basically doesn't want to sacrifice a major infrastructure or IT investment in order to hit a target that they set those four or five years ago. Over their last four quarters, Kroger has used this free cash flow coming in. Remember, they're still very profitable, $353 million in net earnings this last quarter to repurchase $1.7 billion in common shares, and they paid $448 million in dividends. Simply put, they may no longer be in the position to always guarantee as much return value to shareholders due to the increased long-term capital expenditures that will eventually enable them some flexibility. The company's had long-term earnings guidance, this guidance that they're eliminating in place since 2012, but again, rolling that back to more short-term earnings guidance. As far as those technological advancements are concerned, Kroger's already started a space optimization initiative that utilizes insights from that 8450 one group Kroger brought in-house last year that in many cases this optimization initiative will add space for fresh items to stores. Again, that's a big focus of Kroger, especially with competition in the organic space and possibly review assortments and category spots in general. And Leighton, when we talk about some of these digital insights, one of the other things is that Kroger underscored their ability to gather consumer data they want to give customers an experience that's comparable to what this much-talked-about future for Whole Foods after the Amazon merger might produce. Yeah, basically all of what you just said is really surrounding the idea of digital and how digital is going to affect the grocery landscape inside the United States. Everybody is trying to utilize analytics to decide where to put certain items. So not only does it affect merchandising, but it affects the customer experience as well as you see 
IT investment really affects point of sale operations as well. And ClickList, which is something that Kroger now has in 700 stores across the United States. On CNBC, their CFO had actually talked about the much talked about Whole Foods Amazon merger. And CNBC analysts were basically asking him how he felt about the merger and what other things that that's going to produce in the long run. And he actually said that they feel very confident about their in-house analytics, specifically with that 8451 group. He alluded to the fact that they have a lot of things going on within the company. They know their core customer and they said they're always making improvements to make the customer a little bit happier. And I think this is something they're basically telling Whole Foods, Amazon, listen, you might want to back off just because Amazon has all of this customer data and Amazon has been doing extremely well in the e-commerce space. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to be a grocery powerhouse. Obviously, Whole Foods does have brick and mortar locations, but significantly less than Kroger currently does. And Kroger, by the way, has a very diversified store portfolio, one that spans the entire United States. Yes, they have white space, but overall, they're growing and continuously growing as with their ClickList program. So I think as they continue to grow out, they're going to be growing out and evolving as well. And you see that with their reinvestment strategy. As for forward guidance, the company expects full year earnings per share to fall in line with previous estimates. Again, they are taking away long-term expectations. However, that does not mean they are taking away annual guidance going forward. They expect those same store sales numbers to be positive for the rest of the year, which is a positive thing for those shareholders, falling between 0.5 and 1%. This is interesting for the company in that they have not factored in possible side effects from hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, but they do not have too much exposure. A very well-diversified company, but I'm sure the hurricane relief efforts may cost the company's bottom line a little bit. You see a lot of companies donating food and supplies, Walmart being one hitting the media headlines. As we said, shares fell a little bit after the earnings release, down 8%, actually more than a little bit, directly after the release on Friday, but now actually slightly up. Shares of Kroger brushed up against a three-year low. They are currently around $21.50 a share as of recording this podcast, but the company has actually seen highs this year within the last 52 weeks or so of $36 per share. So well off from that, there's a potential for a lot of interested investors at this level because of dividends like Breaker International, a falling stock price usually means a higher yield for those companies still churning out a healthy net income, a healthy bottom line there. And so you see currently with the given stock price, the dividend sits at 2.2%, but Kroger consistently does raise that payout. They have done so over the past several years, something that their shareholders and investors have come to rely on. Well, our last story has to do with a new product released from a major West Coast QSR Plus chain as El Pollo Loco rolls out a new line of LTO grilled burritos. For those listing, these burritos are similar to the grilled stuffed burritos at Taco Bell as they will be lightly grilled in a press before serving. A little bit about El Pollo Loco. El Pollo Loco isn't the same category as most Mexican-themed QSR restaurants or fast casuals in the United States as they have a significant focus on one ingredient, their fire-grilled marinated chicken. They take pride in transparency within the preparation as customers can see the chicken being grilled in most of their outlets, akin to what Chipotle's grill line does, for example. They have just over 470 locations in the western U.S., 
Arizona, Nevada, California, and Utah is the more concentrated area for the company's restaurants. And you see over 370 of these are actually in California. They are undergoing a growth plan that has seen 20% expansion of their concept within the last two years. So this is a concept really looking forward to growing out and getting into that white space that you see there after listing those states. They are currently likely to reach the 500 mark in spring of 2018 at the current rate. Overall, they have all the trappings of a successful fast casual restaurant. So far this year, they've experienced same store sales in the positive 2 to 3% range. 2.9% actually in the most recent quarter. They have a solid mix of company-owned and franchisee-owned stores. The split is about 40-60 company franchisee. And you see overall the one problem area is Texas. Sales have been slow there after an entry into the Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth markets. Many of the other local competitors there, including the popular Taco Cabana and Rosa's in Fast Casual and Taco Bueno actually in the QSR segment. So that all brings us to these new menu items. Now, there are four different burritos in this line of grilled burritos. We begin with the farmer's market that has chicken, avocado, cheese, cabbage, carrots, avocado salsa, as well as the avocado, cilantro, and pico de gallo. Their spicy L.A. chicken has chicken, guacamole, pickled jalapenos, cabbage, cheese, beans, rice, avocado salsa, and pico de gallo. Again, their chicken bacon cheddar has chicken and avocado, bacon, caramelized onions, cheddar, beans, and pico. And their double chicken has a double serving of chicken, cheese, cabbage, beans, and pico de gallo. Overall, by listing those off, there's a large emphasis on avocado there. Lots of avocado-based ingredients between guacamole, the avocado salsa, and avocado itself. And this is unusual for fast casual or QSR plus chains, which ordinarily add guacamole or avocado after heating to a dish. And in this case, the avocado will actually be grilled inside the burrito, so it'll be slightly warmed. Also interesting, the chain's avowed interest in making the Texas markets more successful than they already are seems to go by the wayside here. Leighton mentioned the struggles against competitors like Taco Cabana, Rosas, and Taco Bueno in Texas. And despite the fact that the company has said in earnings release after earnings release and investor presentation after investor presentation that they want the Texas market to work, we get names like Spicy LA Chicken and Farmer's Market, but nothing out of this burrito line with Texas-specific regionality. Well, why is this? According to their online menus, these items aren't even being offered in Texas. Instead, Texas markets will remain with platters as their limited time offers currently. Now, typically we applaud regionality with LTOs, but it would seem to make more sense here to put their best foot forward in Texas with some actual menu innovation, which is what we're seeing in these grilled burritos, rather than just recycling a platter promotion for multiple cycles. They first released platters in July. When you have an LTO that lingers too long, you risk getting stale with that. It's more difficult to do a constant media push with that. So by holding these burritos back from the Texas market, it seems like, at least on the surface, they're hampering their locations in that state. The burritos as a whole have a price point just over $6 in most places. They're $6.29 in San Jose and Salt Lake City. 
what they call at the company their tier two locations. However, according to their online ordering site, these same burritos are $8.99 in Metro LA. So they do run a little bit higher in terms of price when you get to those tier one locations. I want to make some comparisons throughout the industry and talk a little bit about the corporate positioning of El Pollo Loco. Again, if you're not familiar with the chain, they try to differentiate themselves on the basis of their chicken. Their chicken is their main ingredient that most of their items at the store are built around and when you look at these burritos again the first thing that comes to mind is a grilled stuff burrito from taco bell but these burritos have elite ingredients and they don't have a lot of the synthetic sauces and that type of thing that taco bell uses and i say synthetic sauces you can guess that the sauces probably aren't from all natural ingredients as you look at the colors and the types of things that they bring to the table however these burritos that el pollo loco is serving they do seem to fit more with q USR Plus Imaging and Fast Casual. And it's interesting because they were once, El Pollo Loco was, considered Fast Casual by some, but they've reiterated in their last two investor days that they are indeed a QSR Plus. That's how they try to position themselves in the marketplace with a price point that's below Fast Casual. But we see these burritos at $6.29 not altogether apart from what Chipotle offers in terms of burritos in many parts of the country. And again, Chipotle considered a fast casual. Limited time offers like this for the company where you have shredded chicken or chopped chicken in the burritos. These assist in their continued push away from bone-in chicken throughout the country and more towards entrees typical of a QSR+. In fact, 46% of their entrees sold last year were bone-in chicken, down from over 50% a few years ago. Bone-in chicken is basically how this chain cut their teeth, but they've started to add other menu items to give customers this optionality. As I've mentioned, though, their continued push in Texas, which included an opening in San Antonio recently, this leaves them struggling to differentiate there by not rolling this LTO out. Yes, they have very unique chicken, but as mentioned before, their platter LTOs are being recycled in this next promotion cycle, and Taco Cabana and Taco Bueno both serve platters full-time, not even as LTOs. In this way, the El Pollo Loco LTOs are really just the exact same as these other companies' year-round offerings in Texas, and it's very difficult to differentiate yourself when you're not bringing anything different to the table. Grilled burritos don't exist at either of these two restaurants. They don't exist actually at a lot of the QSR Plus or Fast Casual restaurants that you have. So it appears as though El Pollo Loco might be missing out on a potential differentiator. It could be, and you could make the argument that Texas hates grilled burritos as a whole, or maybe there's not a huge market for them there. But we both spent a lot of time in Texas. Neither one of us, I don't think, would believe that particular angle of this story. And in fact, I think if you did the media push in an appropriate fashion, or even a regional media push, these burritos would become very popular and maybe bring additional customers into your stores. You look at another QSR Plus and Del Taco, they don't feature grilled burritos either. They do, however, now feature queso at all of their locations again something that el pollo loco doesn't really dabble in a ton speaking of that queso by the way as an aside while we're talking about mexican themed qsr plus and fast casual restaurants chipotle is releasing it nationwide today on september 13th as we record this podcast basically to sum it all up with El Pollo Loco, they appear very healthy in their present dominant market in California, but they seem to be struggling to gain a foothold eastward. 
that really does seem to be the overarching theme here as Trent very smartly laid out their struggles moving eastward. This would call into question their long-term claims regarding a massive amount of white space in the United States. Obviously, there is an amount of white space geographically, but is your customer going to want your food in every market that correlates to that white space? QSR Plus and Fast Casual Mexican is a tough category right now with constant innovation and fast-growing competitors. It appears as though Del Taco has a leg up on El Pollo Loco in growth east and competition, and you see Del Taco is never mentioned in investor presentations at El Pollo Loco likely for good reason. It's a very strong competitor. El Pollo Loco does have a growth-centric price-to-earnings ratio of 24.6 and a massive market cap of $439 million. Del Taco has a price-to-earnings ratio as well that is very growth-centric around 24.6 with a market cap of $541 million. Basically the same companies here if you're looking in terms of market cap and size in the market and overall optimism. One thing to watch, they want to launch in-store ordering kiosks by the end of fiscal year. And you see, so far they have nothing rolled out in a structured way. They did follow through on time with the rewards app launched as planned in the second quarter of this year. A lot going on with all of these QSRs. And it is very fascinating because if you read a lot of restaurant news, you would think that the restaurant industry is dying it is just very competitive and very innovative. And I think this story really sheds light on one niche of the QSR and fast casual segment that really has seen growth in the last number of years. But that growth has to come at a consequence long term. Someone is potentially going to be the loser here. Obviously, this isn't a zero sum game, but there are a lot of competitors in this very tightly crowded space. We've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast called What We Ate, where each late and I tell you about a food that we tried that's new to us or new to the world of food over the last week, and we begin with Leighton. As is common with most Food Focus podcasts, I usually have a snack to talk about, something new that I tried that's not a full-course meal at a restaurant or anything like that, but something I picked up at the local grocery store. This is the same case today as I will be talking about the Abundant Apricot all-natural fruit strip from Stretch Island Fruit Company. That was a lot to take in. But you see, the Stretch Island Fruit Company promotes a lot of foods that compete with conventional candies and snacks and things of that nature. But they do so, and they differentiate because a lot of them are non-GMO, they're gluten-free, and they are all-natural. This all-natural fruit strip is akin to a fruit roll-up that you might be privy to. But Overall, I grew up on the fruit roll-up trend, and I love it. I love the taste of it, but I stopped eating it because it's not non-GMO. It's not all natural. So those types of things actually weigh heavily on me when I make my purchasing decisions at the grocery store, as some of our listeners may know by now. And if you look at the ingredients on this, you see that all of its ingredients are purely natural, very basic. It's apple puree, apricot puree, and pear puree concentrate. So there's actually only three items listed on the ingredients and overall the nutrition facts actually are fairly similar. You only see seven grams of sugar and the company actually makes markings on their package to denote the fact that their sugars actually come from fruit. They're not additional cane sugar that they add into this fruit roll-up type mixture, but overall seven grams of sugar, no fat, 45 calories, a very tasty fruit roll-up Although you could say it's not as sweet, it doesn't have that lingering flavor, it's more starchy, 
but overall fairly good and you can feel good nutritionally as well as each one of these small packages has according to the company 25 percent of a cup of fruit in each the company can be accessed through a website you can go to stretch islandfruit.com and see all of their product mix all of their product listings and it comes at a very reasonable price point as well well recently i went to a gnc and i went to a gnc for actually a different reason than for food i was looking for a hold me over nootropic until my particular shipment of these came in and actually the clerk at the gnc said we don't have anything that really helps the brain go to amazon so maybe one of the reason why gnc's stock prices down so much over the last 52 weeks if their own employees don't know what they sell or don't know what they stock or can't even send customers to their own website nonetheless though i did make a purchase at this GNC because I needed something to hold me over in terms of food and I found on clearance Chef Robert Irvine's Fit Crunch birthday cake flavor. Now what stood out to me about this is this bar was gluten-free. It was maybe $1.30 on clearance but regularly priced right around $1.70 or $1.80. It was a large bar. It's about three ounces. It's 380 calories, 16 grams of fat, and 30 grams of protein which did keep me full for a good amount of time. But what stood out to me about this product was the taste. Despite the fact that it's only got six grams of sugar, it was sweet and it was soft. It had an incredible texture. It kept me full. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. And as I go online and kind of research this product, this is the type of thing, again, that's available by the case or by individual bar price point ranging around $2. But Chef Robert Irvine's Fit Crunch birthday cake, I liked it more, honestly, than I typically like protein bars or anything of that nature. Most of the protein in there is whey protein, but again, the flavor really stands out to you about this, and it seems more decadent than it should be. That'll bring us to the conclusion of this edition of the Food Focus Podcast. Again, thanks to our sponsor, theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get involved with owning a franchise with the UPS Store. For Layton, I'm Trent. So long until Retail Focus this Friday. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.